the excitement was palpable. You, you could feel it among a pretty large segment of the student body. It had been announced at the seminary that on Wednesdays, Chick-fil-A was coming. You have to know, at Covenant Seminary, there's not a whole lot of uh, food right around the seminary. So you really had to bring your lunch or uh, be satisfied with day-old bread from Panera, or St. Louis Bread Company as it's called there, um, that would be given to us. So whatever you brought, there wasn't like a a cafeteria on campus. And so when there was this announcement that Chick-fil-A was going to come, those of us from the South were excited. Now, not everybody, because some people are like, I've never had this Chick-fil-A you're talking about. I'm not quite sure what all the excitement is about. But we knew, because we had tasted the goodness of Chick-fil-A. We wanted to build our bodies on that and minds on that sanctified chicken sandwich. You know, when you're in exile, someplace that's a little bit different, and I've said that a bit tongue-in-cheek, it's just the Midwest, but it wasn't the deep south, right? Little bits of encouragement can help you continue. So you, you maybe have experienced this if you're from somewhere else and you get a chance to go home or to eat that thing that is so good that you wish the whole world knew about. It can help you continue where you are and not so much tongue in cheek. Peter is writing to sojourners and exiles, he calls these people that he's writing to, these churches. He says that in chapter 2, verse 12, and we heard the language of elect exiles at the very beginning of chapter 1. They had a profoundly difficult experience, and Peter is calling them to demonstrate who they are in Christ. Well, what does that look like? Well, what you love, who you love, and what you long for is one of the evidences of the work of Christ within us. It's what we're called to. And yet, even when you're in exile, you can get comfortable with the world that you live in. You can forget the things that you're called to. You can become passive, as Jacob challenged us last week. And so Peter's continuing to build on the theme that actually Jacob preached on last week. He, his theme last week was that if we profess the gospel then it will affect our lives. And in this passage, what we're finding is two very specific examples of what that looks like. That our growth in holiness, and this is my theme, is it's going to change who and what we love. So we're going to have new love and new longing because of Christ. It's different from this world. Christ changes us. And he leads us. But I I don't want us to lose sight of who Christ is and how he is the foundation of that. And so we're going to start with new life because that's what Peter does. He he points us to this again and again and again, but also new love and new longing. So let's start with new life. And at the end of verse 21, uh, Peter says, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, that's after He's pointed to, verse 19, the precious blood of Christ and other mentions of Jesus and his work. And uh, Jacob did a great job last week of holding that tension between what we're called to do, the imperatives 
They're here in this passage, but also without losing sight of who we are first and foremost in Christ. We, Peter holds those things in tension. Jacob held those things in tension for us. We want to continue to hold them in tension because, yes, we are called to a life of holiness. But if you ever begin to think that you are doing that on your own, you've lost the plot. You've gotten off script. You've missed something that Scripture leads us to. We are indeed called to this holiness, but let's not lose who makes that possible. And so our new life comes from Christ. The command to holiness is never removed from the context of the gospel. The indicative, who you are, and the imperative, what you are to do, are held together. And there can be no true growth in holiness if we don't first have life in Christ. And unlike the world that we live in that's constantly trying to sell you on creating your own life, your own meaning, your own truth, your own identity, Peter reminds us that there's all of those things in Christ. New life that we receive and live out of. God is our creator. He's also our recreator. He's the one who gives us life in the first place, and he's the one who gives us new spiritual life in Christ. Where does that start? Do you remember the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus? Nicodemus had come in the middle of the night in the darkness, and he had some questions. He was curious about who Jesus was and Jesus told him from the very beginning in chapter 3, verse 3 of the Gospel of John, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, whoa, uh, how can you do that? And Jesus is saying, I'm talking about something far greater, far different than your imagination right now. Emphasizes that our salvation is rooted in the work of God when we say that we are born again. That's biblical language. I know sometimes that language now has sounds antiquated. We don't want to talk about being born-again believers, born-again Christians, because we don't want to get wrapped up with whatever that means to the world. But it is biblical, scriptural language that reminds us that it's God's work in our lives first that is required. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. Do you know how much I had to do with that? Very little, right? I didn't ask to be born there. I didn't ask when to be born right. I didn't have any control over that. Well, that's the, the idea that Peter now is picking up on, that we hear from Jesus himself, but you hear it here, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another. That's the imperative, the command. We'll come back to that. Earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and abiding word of God. So how do you know that you've been born again? Well, part of that answer comes from how you respond to the good news of Jesus. The gospel message that Jesus came to save us, redeem us, give us new life. How do you respond to that? 
not just one time in the past, if you maybe prayed a prayer or you think about your life and you say, there's a point where I followed God, I made that decision, or maybe you've always done that. But it's our response, and it's why we preach and teach and demonstrate and proclaim the word of God, because it's the power for new life. Not how eloquent we are, it's not our programs, it's not anything but the word of God. Just as the Lord spoke creation into existence, he breathes new life into us and we are changed. And our souls are purified as we reorient our lives around the truth that is proclaimed. And that new birth then places us in a new family which results in sincere, brotherly love, as Peter writes. Uh, The new life means this new family built on the same promises of God that we receive as truth and believe as certain. And it's interesting then that Peter would quote from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. Now he uses the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was available at this time, and it's a little more compressed than what you might read in your Bibles, uh, in our translations, but the concept that the words are pretty much the same and it's just a little bit more condensed. And here's a section where in Isaiah 40, Isaiah is writing of comfort to a people that have great uncertainty in their lives. They're going to be exiles as well. They're going to need to know that God is the one who will bring new life. And how does he do that? Well, he promises us that. And he promises to give us new life in his word. And so this section is quoted, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so that means if God has made a promise to you, If he's made a promise to our new family, then we can be certain of that promise. And Peter says, you know, Isaiah wasn't just preaching to Israel. He was preaching to us about Jesus. This word is the good news that was preached to you. And oh, how I need to know the certainty of the gospel as it's declared in God's words, because my thoughts and feelings can be all over the map from day to day, week to week, depending on what's happening in my world or the world. Some days I'm confident and sometimes I shake and quiver and don't know what to think or believe. And that's exactly where Peter's audience would have been on at this time particularly as they experienced the uncertainty of their place in the world and in the Roman Empire. The word of God brings new life and what is truly lasting, unlike the fear they face. And so if you're a Christian in the Roman Empire and you say, Jesus is Lord. What are you by necessity saying? Caesar isn't. And that could be problematic, couldn't it? So if that's the stance you're going to take in the world, then you need to know the promises of the Lord and the new life that he's given you in Christ. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says you are saved by what Christ felt for you, not by what you feel. And that is good news. 
in a world that is changing every five minutes. I need an anchor for my soul, and that anchor is Jesus and the word of the gospel. If you've never responded to that gospel message, that good news, then I encourage you to turn and believe in Christ. But if you have that new life, then you're going to be brought into a new love. And I think there are scenes that you just don't forget in your life that that you just you can picture. You remember how things felt, the lighting, the mood, the events. I have to think that Peter would have remembered so well. They were like a moving picture in his memory of when Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, the night before he's crucified took his disciples, had a meal with them, but before that meal, he took his cloak off, his tunic, he he disrobed, takes on the clothing of a servant, and he said to the disciples, I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to be like the slave. I'm going to be like the servant, and I'm going to get down and dirty with you. And you you may remember, Peter was like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, not having it. And Jesus said, oh, yeah, you got to. That's a paraphrase. I have to think that Peter remembered that evening. He remembered what Jesus said then towards the end of that portion of the evening in the upper room. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, the command to love is not new. That's in the Old Testament. Love the Lord, love your neighbor, love one another implicitly. But what's new? Just as I have loved you. So what does that mean? That means that Jesus got down and dirty In the sin of this world, in our sin, and took that on himself. How does Jesus love us? He loves us to the end. He loves us to the cross. He loves us today. And from that love, then, we are called to love one another. And I was reading this book, Everyday Church. Tim Chester, Steve Timmis are the authors. And they apply these words uh, to where we live and challenge us. To live out this new love. So they say how can then. We thrive on the margins. So they're talking about being kind of in exile. Or on the margins of society. An essential part of the gospel's response. Is that we are not alone. Not even in our marginalization. By being in Christ. We are in with his people. Who though rejected by the world. Are are precious to God. Paradoxically. Although uh, comprised of the socially insignificant, because of who Christ is, the church is the ultimate in crowd. Do you hear that good news, people? We're the in crowd. I love that. It's hard for us to grasp the significance of this community identity because we live in a radically individualistic culture. So, they go on to say, we have a loose connection with Christians on Sunday, but then we largely go back to living our everyday lives on our own, No matter, and they say, no wonder we struggle to survive. 
We have got to allow the gospel to define our identity rather than the prevailing secular and socially fragmented story that our society tells. In Christ, we have been restored to what we were originally made to be, men and women who live in community and are characterized by sincere brotherly love. So I appreciated the challenge there in what they are uh, writing. And I know that we don't always know exactly what it looks like to love one another well, how to apply this, but I think we know pretty clearly what it doesn't mean. In fact, Peter tells you in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. I think we can agree that those things are not things that will help us to love one another. Malice is ill will towards uh, that works against the good of others and often actively brings about harm. Deceit. How easily do we lie to one another? Not just our words, but also sometimes our actions that are intended to deceive. Hypocrisy. We're encouraged in Romans twelve nine for our love to be genuine. But hypocrisy would be the opposite of that because it's merely concerned with how things appear, how things look, rather than what's going on within us. Envy works against love because it becomes jealous of others' blessings and doesn't want them to have it. And slander, its willingness to use untrue words against another or a group for the purpose of building our own selves up. But how we treat one another should change in this new family that we have new life in. We're given to love for God's glory. And because he shows us his grace. But you know what's sad to me? And I knew this reading that book that I just quoted from. That one of the authors, Steve Timmis, was removed a couple years ago from his positions of ministry. He's a pastor in England. He was, and he led, he was the CEO of Acts 29, which is an influential church network in our country and around the world. He was removed because of abusive leadership, bullying, intimidation, what's called heavy shepherding, even threats of church discipline for those who resisted him. A former elder at that church said people were and are afraid of Steve Timmis. It's sad to know that reality, even as I read something that I said, you know what, that's encouraging. That leads us. We're called to this brotherly, sincere brotherly love and to love one another, and yet love is absent in those behaviors, isn't it? And unchecked, they do much damage to the family of God. And we should look quite different than the world that we inhabit. So what does that require? That requires your sacrifice. Jesus shows you that. And it will require our repentance of sin. Jesus forgives us of that. But here we should take seriously this call to new love. Love for those that God has put us around. And his words certainly apply to pastors. But he also writes to the church broadly. So are you willing to grow in the holiness of who you love? And just like your family, you didn't choose. 
and I know we can choose our church, but you don't really choose your family in Christ. And so that means we're going to have to learn to love each other and put up with each other and forgive each other. Yes, and that's a part of our growth in holiness because God has chosen you to put you, put you here. And let's not forget that we love because God has first loved us. But out of that love of God for us comes the call to love one another in a sincere and pure way. So we will put aside the garments of selfishness of sin. And we will put on the garments of a slave or a servant as Christ did with all of his life. And finally, that leads us to a new longing. So our growth in holiness changes who we love, the people around us, and what we love. And I still think about these Brussels sprouts. We went to this restaurant, it's a fancy restaurant, it's a special occasion restaurant, you know what I mean? Birthday, anniversary, it's not like, what do you want? Well, let's go. This is Purveyor in uh, downtown Huntsville. And we went a couple years ago, I think it was for our anniversary, and they had these candied bacon Brussels sprouts. And I still think about those Brussels sprouts today. Listen, there's probably not a month or a week that goes by that I don't think about those things. And if you had told me when I was a kid that I would stand up before a bunch of people and talk about Brussels sprouts with great longing, I would have said, you're crazy. But I would love to taste those again. You know, we are changed, right? As we grow, our tastes change, our interests change. Well, that's true in the Christian life, too. What you long for, what you crave changes now if when i was a kid you offered me brussels sprouts or cotton candy what would i have chosen a hundred times out of a hundred times cotton candy you know what i wouldn't touch that stuff today right now it's just yeah maybe okay maybe one time maybe okay all right it's a process fine as the Lord gives us new birth and is our father in heaven, he knows what we need. Then the idea of life growing is present here. Look at verse two. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up un- into salvation. He writes, and what are infants good at? They're good at the essentials, Right. Sleeping, sometimes. Yeah. Breathing, good. Eating, and, and then the waste that comes after that. But they're right, really, really focused on the essentials, especially when they're hungry. Or you've ever seen an infant that's hangry, right? And they will flail about, and they will let you know until they are able to latch on to that which gives them sustenance. And then you, you, you have probably seen that infant go from flailing to being contented. At least for that moment, right? They're growing. Well, what is this pure spiritual milk? Well, I think the, there's a clear connection in the language that Peter uses with the word of God that he's already spoken about. 
we need that living and abiding word at the end of verse 23, as, as Peter says. We will never grow to a place in our spiritual lives where we don't need God's word. Where we don't need his promises. Where we don't need his truth. Where we don't need his revelation of who he is to us. Where we don't need his commands. We'll never grow out of that. That's why Peter's saying, be like that. Be focused on the essentials of what will help you to grow. That's how we grow. It's why we preach the word of God. It's why we sing the word of God. It's why we pray the word of God. It's why we read the word of God. It's why we listen to it. It's why we seek to follow it week after week after week. And what does Peter say that in verse 3? He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I don't think he's trying to raise doubt. There's a place for evaluation, yes. But I don't think he's trying to raise doubt. He's simply drawing their attention to say, if you've, ex- if you've had those Brussels sprouts, if you've tasted it, and you know it's good, then why would you want the cotton candy? If you know it will help you grow, don't go for this over here. Go for this. And unfortunately, I fear that so much of what passes for pure spiritual milk is diluted and tainted. I fear that in, our, in the church as a whole. But if you've experienced the blessing from the Lord, do you believe that God is good? Have you experienced blessing from the Lord? Have you received his unmerited favor that has been shown to you? Have you been forgiven your offenses against the Lord? The Christian should be crying out, yes, and yes, and yes, and yes, God is good. And all the time, and all the time, God is good. Yes, our difficulties will challenge us. David wrote Psalm 34, which Peter's quoting for, we saw that in our call to worship. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. David wanted others, others to know the salvation that he had experienced. David had wrote 30, Psalm 34 after he had been rescued from a very difficult situation in, with the Philistines. His life was in danger. And you can go and read all of Psalm 34 and read 1 Samuel 21, I think it is, and see that. But he wanted others to know that God is good. And there are dry seasons where we don't crave the word of God. We want other things. And if that's where you are right now, then just say a simple prayer that the Lord would give you a renewed longing for what will help you to grow. And keep participating in corporate worship because we're constantly putting the word of God in front of our hearts. And let's encourage one another with the promises and peace of God that we find in scripture when we find ourselves in hard places. Because as we do that, we will actually be loving each other as well. Our son, Ethan, is pretty picky. He's been picky all his life. And that's fine. He's still grow like he survived right and mom and dad survived it's okay 
right? But he was picky growing up, and we, would tr- we tried to introduce him to Chick-fil-A. We did. And he said, no, I don't want that. Not interested. But because he was staying with some people during a time where we needed some help, uh, he was polite to those who were taking care of him. They took him to Chick-fil-A, and out of his politeness, he ate it. And what did he see? He said, Mom and Dad, you were right. Yeah, listen, you remember those comments because they don't always come, right? But what were we trying to do? We're trying to show the people that we love things that are good. And that's exactly what the gospel calls us to, that as we grow in holiness, what we want to show the people that we love is what is good for them. And what is good for them is good for us. And that is God's word and his promises that we find there of who Christ is for us. And so we're growing and we will be growing all of our lives in who and what we love. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for today. In this time, thank you for your word, and I pray that you would help us to consider the commands that you do give us, but not to lose sight of Christ and what he has done in the life that you give us. Uh, Lord, let us keep all these things held together because that's how you give them to us. And so, Lord, let us not walk away thinking, okay, I got to do, but instead let us rest in you and see this new life that comes out as a result. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to confess our faith before communion this morning. The Apostles' Creed is there on page 7 in the bulletin. And so I invite you to join with Christians through the millennia and around the world who confess their faith in this way. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen.